Well, good morning. Thanks, Kenny. So I became a Christian in my late teens, right? And some of you could relate. When you first become a Christian, there's this phenomenon that happens that you can't really explain or even have the categories for initially. Just a new perspective, desires start changing. Hey, what is going on here, right? That happened to me in my late teens. And I went back, or I didn't have a lot of knowledge at the time. Went back and thought about it, and yeah, I didn't know a whole lot. You know, most people, when they first come to Christ, they don't know a lot of these theological terms or what's exactly going on. I certainly didn't have a lot of knowledge. In fact, I didn't even know what homeschooling was until I became a Christian. I was like, wait, 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 wait. You mean you get to go to school and stay at home? What? That was an option? Good grief. You know, I tried my own version of that in high school, my senior year in high school, and it didn't, it didn't go very well. It didn't go very well. I kept getting phone calls. Hey, you sick? You dead? We need a note or something. You need to come to school. I should have just said, hey, man, I was homeschooling, man. I was homeschooling. Should have played that card. I didn't know it was available. So, yes, I didn't have a lot of knowledge. I didn't know a whole lot. Um, but despite that, in my youthful exuberance, I went back and I shared the gospel with my high school friends and my immediate high school friends. They just hey, man, this got to tell you about Jesus. And I had a wide variety of responses. You know, one being, you know, hey, that's great that that works for you and you seem happy now, but, you know, religion is really not my thing. Thanks, but no thanks. To another response such as, wait, 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 wait. Does this mean you're not doing drugs with this anymore, man? Oh, man, party pooper, man. Can't believe it. Jeez. And, you know, none of my high school friends, at least my immediate high school friends, uh, came to Christ as a result of me sharing the gospel with them. None of them. But there was this one friend who I still, you know, consider a brother, and we still keep in contact. His name's Danny Morial, right? And I remember... Uh, we went through middle school and high school. They were really close friends. And I remember one evening, he was staying over um, with us. And it was my mom's place. And we are in the living room. It was in the evening. I remember just sharing the gospel with him, right? It's like, hey, Danny, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we need to be saved by grace. And Christ came down and, and to forgive us of our sins and the work on the cross. He gives us his righteousness. And we, we, we get to have a relationship with Christ if we believe that. You know, and on and on it went. And his response was, you know what, Junior? I'm just not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm just not ready for that stuff yet. You know, maybe later. Maybe later. You know, I kept sharing. I kept praying. And a couple years goes by. As you know, we still kept in contact. And then get this phone call, you know, a couple years later. And, you know, it was my friend Danny. We're talking, hey, we're catching up. Hey, what's going on? And he tells me, I remember the phone call. He tells me, hey, guess what? I remember replying sarcastically and saying, well, what happened? Did you finally get saved or something? And he says, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I said, whoa, 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 hold the phone. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. How did it happen? Who's, what, what, when, where? And he shared what happened. And, you know, I, I remember wanting to, to weep over the phone. But, of course, you know, men don't cry. So, you know, I, I held it in. And, and, and I still marvel at that and, and, and to still 
um, think about where we were before Christ and, and where we are now. It's truly a marvel. It just reminds me of what Paul told the Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not, coming, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Not in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. You see, Danny's testimony reminded me that only God raises the dead. That he's the one in the business of saving sinners. And it's not up to me and my wisdom and wit to change people's hearts. You know, certainly we have a role in that. You know, it, it wasn't, hey, Dan, here are 10 facts of the resurrection. Here, here you go. Or, hey, here's the intellectual, here's the intelligent design argument. You've got to at least acknowledge there's a creator, right? You know, it, it wasn't any of that. And please, don't get me wrong. Those things are important. Hey, I graduated from Biola and Talbot. I paid top dollar to know that stuff. I would never minimize its importance, right? It's expensive to know that stuff. <laughs> expensive to know that stuff. So, yes, those are important, but we don't put our eggs entirely in that basket. And I don't know a better passage to hammer home this point than in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This will be our primary text today. And we're going to go through the first 10 verses. And before we start reading the passage, think Let's take a step back, take a look at the big picture, get the lay of the land so you get the idea of the structure of the text. So the first three verses of chapter 2, we have the plight of humanity, right? Our pre-Christian state. The biblical diagnosis for fallen society and fallen man, right here in these three verses. Why is everything so bad? Well, Paul will tell you. And in complete contrast with that, our pre-Christian state from verses 8 through 10 is our post-Christian state. Answering two questions that, hey, how did it happen? And since it happened, now what? Right? So we have one through three, our pre-Christian state, eight through ten, our post-Christian state, and smack dab in the middle of this passage, verses four through seven, God reveals that he is merciful, and that he is rich, and that he is generous. And only he raises the dead. And here we go in verse one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead, and you were dead, the spiritual deadness as a result of the fall in Adam and Eve, we inherited the sin nature and the spiritual dead state. You know, most of you probably heard the phrase that hey, Christianity is a crutch for weak people. 
right? Religion is for the feeble-minded. You know, the world likes to be perceived as strong, independent, self-sufficient, and completely autonomous. We don't need this religion stuff. You've heard that, right? Christianity is a crutch for weak people. When I hear that, I like to say, ha! It's far worse than that. It's resurrection for dead people. See, the fact that you think it's a crutch implies you have some semblance of life. You don't even have that. It's not for the merely incapable, but for the completely incapacitated. We are dead. Dead. So then it begs the question, hey, if I'm born in this spiritual dead state, how am I culpable? How am I responsible then? And in verse 2, Paul answers, in which you once walked following the course of this world, this idea of walking, this daily habitual life, this intimate relationship with the world. And the world is hostile towards God, seeks to define terms without the goodness of God. You know, in Romans 1, the world denies that he's the creator and refuses to give praise due his name. And it's a culture that swayed us. It's a culture that seeks to define goodness apart from the giver of goodness. And we went right along with it. We followed with it. Our attitudes, our habits, our preferences, we went right along with it. We had no problems with that. Oh, I get to dictate what truth is. I get to dictate what's good and what's right. And in my own subjective ideas of how I think the universe should be run, that's how it should be governed. I get to do that. Hey, I'll go, I'll go with that. We went right along with it. We are absolutely culpable. If then, if God created the world, why the hostility? Well, in the next phrase in verse 2 says, following the prince, the power of the air. This is none other than Satan himself. So yes, the world is hostile towards God, but there's a powerful influence. Not just the world, but even us. As he says, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what we were described as, sons of disobedience, people of disobedience. And the world and Satan. Satan's called the devil in 6.11 in Ephesians. He's called the evil one in 6.16. He's called a prince and a ruler in other passages. In Matthew's gospel, 9.34, he's called the ruler of the demons. John 12.31 calls him the prince of this world. And this idea of air, prince of the power of the air, this just connotes it's everywhere. Not that, not that Satan is omnipresent, but that his influence is everywhere. Everywhere. Prince of the power of the air. And describing us as sons of disobedience just means we were characterized by disobedience. We had an affinity towards disobedience. We were characterized by rebellion. Rebellion against God's authority. God's authority. Hey, I created the world. Here's my created order. There are clear definitions and terms and roles, and this is how you flourish. We said, no, no. We like things on our terms. That's what we rebelled against. So you have the world, you have Satan in here in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
So we liked our sin. No, we loved our sin, indulging in complete debauchery and enjoying it, even though it was hollow and we knew it. So then we have the world, we have Satan, and we have even our own flesh, this inner inclination just to do evil. And even legitimate human needs and legitimate human emotions get subverted get distorted because of our self-centeredness and it manifests itself in evil and wicked ways. And you could see that in the world. And to say that we could somehow give ourselves life is to say that we could battle all these things on our own and walk away victorious. That is a complete impossibility. Yet, the story doesn't end there, nor does this passage. And in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. If anybody were ever to ask me the question, how would you summarize the gospel in two words? These are the two words I would say, but God. You were dead, but God made you alive. You were a captive to this world. You were a slave to Satan, but God raised you from the dead and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. His initiation. And we have often heard and emphasized, and for good reason, that the gospel is that our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Yes, that's a beautiful truth, but that's only half the gospel. So we have this insurmountable debt because of our sins, and if it gets forgiven, we still don't have any equity to approach God and have a relationship with him. Hooray, my sins are forgiven. I have received neutrality with God. No, that's, that's, not, that's not the entire gospel. That's not the entire gospel. So not only does he wipe out our debt, transforming us from children of wrath to the sons of God, but he also clothes us with the righteousness of Christ and the riches that encompasses all of that. So now we have the equity and the capital to be able to approach God and his throne room boldly and confidently, not by anything we've done, but we know the matchless price Christ paid for it. And we humbly approach but with confidence because we are now rich. So here... In the first three verses, Paul sets up our destitution, that we're completely, utterly lacking the ability to give ourselves life. And this complete contrast is us being recipients of God's generosity. It serves to magnify God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. So here, but God. So he has the means, being rich in mercy. And he has the motives because of the great love with which he's loved us. So he has the means, he has the motive, and he has the purpose. Skip down to verse 7 where he says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. So his riches and his kindness might be in full display by saving us, 
by imparting us these riches that are so undeserving that he would be in full display of that. Nothing in here says, hey, you know what? You tried really hard. Okay, here, here's some grace for you the rest of the way. Nothing in here says, hey, you know what? Since you're good, outweighed your bad, although just barely, here, grace, riches, nothing in there says that about us. It's about God. It's about God. And this phrase, by grace you have been saved, in verse 5, it's a parenthetical statement. You notice maybe some of your Bibles has parentheses on it. Uh, Paul actually breaks this sentence grammatically and just wedges this phrase in here. I mean, he repeats it in verse 8. So why would he shove that in here now? Well, it's to be clear that your resurrection to newness of life was by God's grace. It's to be God-saturated, to constantly remind you that it was divine initiation, that without apart from an act of God, we would not have changed course. We would have kept following the world, kept following Satan's influence, and indulged our own flesh. If God didn't take initiative, we would have stayed upon that course. And he inserts that here. And he raises us with them and seats us with them in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here, in verse 8 through 10, now we have our post-Christian state. We have the plight that we are completely impoverished, but God gives us riches. And now we are in Christ. How did that happen? Well, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Excuse me, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how. And this is not your own doing. What is the this referring to, and there's some debate about this, that is this this referring to faith or is it referring to the grace that verse 8 is talking about? Well, if you look in the Greek, it's actually in the neuter case. This and grace and faith are in the feminine uh, gender. And genders need to match if it's referring back to any one thing. So scholars believe that the this The second part of verse 8 is referring back to that whole phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And you know what? That grace you received, yeah, it wasn't of you. And you know that faith you received, yeah, that wasn't of you either. And it wasn't certainly anything you've done, not as a result of works. And here's the negative goal. So that no one may boast so that no one may boast, not your own doing. Any type of human achievement, any idea that you have some self-efficiency, no, you don't bring that to the table. You bring nothing to the table, absolutely nothing to the table. You know, I was reading this, and I think about how terrible the Apostle Paul would be as a motivational speaker. Absolutely terrible. You get these self-help gurus, and you're like, hey, the power of the will, think positive. Yeah, you could do it. Buy my book for $59.95, right? Paul would walk in the seminar and say, no, nah, man, you all dead. You all dead. Clear the room in seconds probably. You can't do it. Only God can. 
So in the light of this truth, what do we do? Do we just kick back poolside and enjoy a piña colada? No, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's work to be done, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word walk again is a complete contrast to walking with the world and walking with Satan and indulging our own flesh. Now we're walking in the good works God the Father prepared beforehand. True conversion. True conversion. Back to my friend Danny. So we're in this phone conversation, and he, said, and he actually brings up the conversation we had back in high school. And he says, hey, Junior, remember when I said I wasn't ready? Remember when I said that? I said, yeah, I remember. And he says, you know what I really meant was I wanted to keep doing drugs. I wanted to be with as many women as I possibly could be. I wasn't ready to clean up myself and approach God. You know, um, and that last phrase, he's, he chuckled as he said that, realizing, like, the folly of that idea of having to clean ourselves up in order to approach God. He experienced true conversion, and then he, he started talking about how his desires started changing. And he talked about how, you know, he was working in this furniture company, and there were a bunch of Christians there always sharing the gospel with him. And one of these drives that he was dropping off some furniture, a complete stranger shared the gospel with him. And on and on and on, he, he tells me. And then through this course of just hearing the gospel and, 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 and through prayer, I certainly kept praying for him. Uh, he just said, you know what, I didn't, I didn't want to do drugs anymore. I just didn't want to do that. I had this one-bedroom apartment all set up for myself, and I just kept thinking, oh, I could do all the drugs I want. I could bring whoever over and you know what, that, that changed. I started rooming with the roommate to keep myself accountable. I didn't want to do any drugs anymore. And he just goes on and on and on. So true conversion from verses 1 through 3 to 4 through 10 is that we walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand. And this good works is in complete contrast with not as a result of works. Nothing that you've done beforehand mattered because it wasn't done in re- because of our relationship with God or to give him glory. It's the good works created in Christ Jesus. So this newness of life, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you are created in Christ Jesus. And this word workmanship, for we are his workmanship here, right? The Greek word is poema, where we get our English word poem, right? You know, in classical times, they even use this word as a, for a craftsman to build a crown. So we are his workmanship. You know, to deny the existence of God, it's like a painting denying there's an artist. No, we are his signature. We are his signature. And there's a difference because general creation is that we're all being, we are created in God's image and there's human dignity in that. But there's a difference being created in Christ Jesus being redeemed, a different type of creation, a creation that he finds more riches and marvel in. Why would he use us to proclaim his word? Well, it's so that 
the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are that beautiful tapestry, taking the most bitter, sinful, wretched human beings, redeeming them and using them to unfold human history as he sees fit. His wisdom is in full display as we walk in his good works. And as we continue to walk in his works, his mercy is displayed. You know, briefly last week, Eric Tanis talked about salvation being uh, talked about in the Bible in all three tenses, right? You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And theologians called, give the categories of justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? So this one-time act, being raised from the dead and being placed in the heavenlies in the past, we are justified, and God looks at us no different than he does his son Jesus, and this process that we go through, are we exactly like Christ? No. You could, you could ask my wife that. No, he's, he's, he's not exactly like Christ. But we work. <laughs> we work towards being like Christ, not to secure salvation, but as a byproduct of salvation. Let me define sanctification like this, this process that we're all going through, this in process after this one-time act in the past. Sanctification is the working out of our character in conformity to our justified position in Christ. Okay, let me read it again. Sanctification is the working out of our character in conformity to our justified position in Christ. Right? We're looking more and more every day like our justified position. And that's God displaying his craftsmanship. I think about this and I think about the trajectory I was headed towards. Not just hell, but just what my, where my life would be right now if God didn't save me in the time he did in the manner in which he did it. I think about, oh man, would I be in jail? Would I be um, homeless? Would I be in a gang? At minimum, I think I'd be living in my sister's garage, right? At bare minimum, with the dogs. Um, Instead, I'm standing before you today. I'm just another member like you guys. I wouldn't have the wife I have today. Wouldn't have the children I have today. Wouldn't have the job I have today. And all these simple things are a display of his craftsmanship. He is rich and he is gracious. So what then? In the light of this wonderful truth, how should we react? How should we respond? Well, I can't think of a better person to do this than the Apostle Paul himself who wrote this passage. Turn to chapter 3, please, in Ephesians. They try to make it convenient for you guys. It's right in the next chapter. Chapter 3 in Ephesians. Uh, We won't read it word for word, but in verse 1 through 7, verse 7, 1 through 7, Paul gives this idea there's this responsibility that we have because of the grace given us. There's this responsibility and stewardship that he has. 
right? Well, let's pick it up in verse 6. Verse 6, 3, 6. This mystery, the mystery of the gospel, is that the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but everybody, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. When you're given something this valuable, it changes you. He was made a minister. It changes you. Which was given to me by the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this profound humility that we have, knowing our destitute state and the riches that we were given leads to profound humility. But don't mistaken humility for timidity because he goes on and says for this grace was given for what to preach to preach to the gentiles to the nations the unsearchable riches of christ the unfathomable riches of christ to preach what are these riches that he's talking about well we've talked about his grace and his mercy in chapter two but it's includes everything that preceded it you think about chapter 1 in Ephesians where Paul says you were blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You were predestined to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the riches of his grace. You were given redemption. You were given forgiveness through your trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You were predestined to have an inheritance and not only an inheritance, but you were sealed with the Holy Spirit to guarantee that inheritance to the praise of his glory. And all these riches that come up and sum up, I think about these riches and, and I, have an, I have an image that usually comes to mind. Actually, Scrooge, I think of Scrooge McDuck. I think of Scrooge McDuck, right? One of my favorite cartoons as a kid was DuckTales, right? And Scrooge McDuck. And I love the fact that he would just swim in his money, right? All this vast wealth. All this vast wealth. Of course, you know, when I studied physics and I found out you couldn't really do that, that was, <laughs> it's pretty disappointing. You know, oh, wrestling wasn't real. Santa wasn't real. Oh, I can't swim in money. Oh, man, this transition to adulthood was tough, right? So this idea of swimming in this wealth, and I just love the imagery, though, because he just basks in it. He loves it. He's enthralled by it. He enjoys it, right? And part of the TV show is, you know, him learning how to go and actually help other people with it. Um, and that's us as Christians when we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. That's us as Christians. Yes, he gives you these riches to enjoy, to be enthralled, to be enraptured by it, to point us back to Christ. And we enjoy it. But you know what would be a tragedy? If Scrooge McDuck just hoarded it all for himself. I mean, his, his name is Scrooge, right? I mean, that would be the tragedy. And he hoards it all for himself. And here we are basking in the riches of Christ. I just gave you a glimpse of how God changed my life. And it would be nice to just put it on cruise control and like, hey, my life is kind of straightened out now. You know, I do need some work. But man, at least 
I could kind of put it in cruise control and just show up to work and not get fired, and that'd be good. That's it. And hoard the riches that Christ gave me. No, we are to preach these riches. We are to share these riches. And in a time with so much uncertainty and instability, yes, we need to give the answer. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, skip to verse 14 through 19. So then Paul, there's a responsibility and his reaction is to pray. We actually don't have time to read the whole passage, but verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He prays. He prays. And in this particular prayer, one of my favorite prayers in the Bible is he asked for two things for us Christians. He asked for two things. One, that we would live godly lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. We live godly lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And two, to know the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. Live godly, know Christ's love. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't end there. Turn to chapter 6 in Ephesians. Verse 18, 6.18. So he prays for us and he says, hey, live godly lives, know Christ's love. But he doesn't end there. But he ends this epistle saying, praying, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You think a godly man like the Apostle Paul said, hey, well, what type of prayer request would we have? Would he have? And this is what he asked. Give me the words. Give me boldness. And I'm in chains as a result. And this isn't a metaphor either. So then if only God could raise the dead, then we must invoke him to raise the dead. If only God has the power to save sinners, we must petition him to do so. We must be dependent on prayer. And there's probably several people, even in your phone contact list, that you're probably like, you know what? I need to pray for these people. I need to pray that God moves in their hearts and replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, and I need to pray. And whatever excuses that they may have, that God would take those excuses away. So why, So let's close then in a time of prayer. Can't preach on prayer and not pray. It just doesn't make sense. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for these riches, this mercy that you've granted us. May it embolden us to proclaim your word and to depend on prayer, knowing that you are ultimately the one who does the work. 
and it's in the name of the one who is rich. Amen. Amen.